Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Uh, today on the podcast, we have a very special takeover. Uh, Sam Baker, uh, the incredible author and journalist, uh, came into the studio to chat to two of our authors. Um, sometimes I think it's really interesting to have this layered discussion between, especially two debut authors, um, about what their books entail and, and kind of getting that kind of back and forth, that bounce off of, the, of their um, reports of creativity and, and how they really kind of structured and, and, and built their novels. Um, so we have Isabella Hamad and Namwali Sapel. Isabella is the author of The Parisian and Namwali is the author of The Old Drift. Um, these are two incredible uh, debut novels and they are also pretty hefty and um, which is really exciting to be able to know that you're going to spend that amount of time with the book I think it's really lovely sometimes when you get your hands around a really big book and you know that it's not going to end for a while because for me uh, falling in love with short books is um, a short road to heartbreak because they finish so fast so they talk in the podcast a little bit about that and why um, long books are important uh, and lots about heritage the meaning we bring to stories uh, and how, how they wrote these incredible books. Um, so I really hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, I'll let Sam take it away. Hi, I'm Sam Baker. I'm a journalist, editor, novelist and all-round book nerd and I'm delighted to be guest hosting this episode of the Vintage Podcast. I'm in a basement in Pimlico in rainy London with um, two absolutely brilliant authors, Isabella Hamad, author of the Parisian. Hello, Isabella. Hello. And Namwali Sapel, author of The Old Drift, which I have to admit, I am like, you can't see my fingers, but I'm this close to the end. Ah. So don't tell me how it ends. Okay. Um, <laughs> no and my excuse is they are both absolute doorstops of novels. <laughs> <laughs> like, but both 570 pages, is that right? Yes, yeah. we were saying yeah, we're book we're 576, exactly. Yeah. Five, yeah. Both of yeah. you 576? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh my <laughs> God. Never take a job where you've got to read 1,200 pages of a book before you do the job, that's what I say. <laughs> um, these books have so much in common and and so much not in common too. Um, rather than me banging on about them, um, tell us a bit about your stories and where they come from. I think we start with you, Isabella. Okay. Um, well, the book is about, it's, it opens in 1914. It follows a young man called Mitat Kamel from the Palestinian town of Nablus, and he's on his way to the south of France to study medicine um, at the outbreak of the First World War. And the book is in three parts. The first part is in France, and the second two are when he returns to Palestine. Um, and the Ottoman Empire has been defeated in the war, and Britain and France have carved up the Middle East, and Palestine is under British rule. So it's about his life. He's a very sensitive and eccentric man who continues to be infatuated with France, um, living in this period of turmoil um, as the Palestinians are starting to fight for their independence. And it's actually based on your grandfather, isn't it? It is, but pretty loosely. I mean, they're, they're kind of he was um, he was an eccentric guy in Nablus. He was known as the Parisians, Alberici. So um, I had heard stories about him when I was young, and um, I began wanting to write about him when I was a teenager, and then I eventually did. Um, yeah. So is it? But it's fictional. It's but it's all fiction. fiction. It's, it's all not, you know, it's yeah. not a fictionalized biography. No, of no, him. It's the, no, no. It's a novel. <laughs> and tell us a bit, Namwali, about your. Epic, epic story. <laughs> so The Old Drift is uh, a story about Zambia, which is where I'm from. And in trying to figure out the best way to tell the story of a country, I decided to start with a graveyard. I encountered The Old Drift Cemetery in 2012 in the game park at Victoria Falls. 
and it's a set of you know, little crumbling tombstones and it's the last trace of a colonial settlement on the banks of the Zambezi River from the late 19th century where people from all over the world pitched up to try and make their fortunes. Um, people from Germany, people from Chicago, people from uh, India um, and I start with a British photographer named Percy Clark who's a historical figure who came to that part of the world uh, to try and make his fortunes and I put him into a little conflict with two other historical figures uh, Pietro Gavuzzi who was an Italian I'm hotelier. so glad you pronounced that because I was dreading having to do that <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and a man named Ngulube who Percy mentions in his autobiography uh, which is called Autobiography of an Old Drifter and these three men get uh, caught in a tiny little kerfuffle and it ripples over the centuries, over the course of multiple generations, three families, um, and kind of swirls down into a vortex and ends up in the near future Zambia with three political revolutionaries who are also in love triangle. And these three families are very racially um, hybrid. So I have characters from India, from Italy, from England, and then also um, native-born Zambians. And it follows the story of the country coming into being, um, but also traces the way that repercussions can follow um, the, an oblique path between people. So rather than the Montagues and the Capulets, you have these three families kind of set in a cycle of unwitting retribution. It's so, uh, I don't know, it's, it's such a fascinating book. Um, what, why was it that you used, you decided on the three families? I think I wanted, again, not to have this direct antagonism between families, but to have this kind of oblique relation. And to do that, to have one family affect the second family, which affects the third family, which affects the first family, requires a kind of opening up of the geometry of, of family conflict. Um, but I also wanted really to capture what I think of as the very cosmopolitan nature of my country, which I don't think many people uh, perceive African capital cities like Lusaka in that way. But it was my experience growing up as a mixed-race Zambian who went to an Indian school with a Buddhist sister, you know, to have these different cultural influences coming in. So to think about multiple families um, kind of intermarrying and also being engaged with each other in economic terms was a way for me to kind of put a lens on class politics and race politics in Zambia. I mean, the notion of family and um, belonging or not belonging is, is huge in the Parisian as mm. well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Midtat, the protagonist, um, is really struggling with um, the demands of family when he returns to Palestine. So I was sort of interested in, um, in Nablus, Historically, there have always been these three major families. I actually changed the names mm. in the novel, but these three major families that were the elites. Um, and um, also among the elites is the family um, that Midhat marries into. So they're, they're, they're kind of family and class dynamics very much at play in Nablus, continuing today, in fact. Um, and I was interested in someone trying to navigate this as a young man in an upwardly mobile family, mercantile family, um, trying to marry above him, essentially. Um, while the entire structure is under threat from the outside. So what does it mean to be um, having to uh, obey these essentially quite conservative patriarchal norms while everything is under threat? And what does that do to a family? Um, and 
you know, uh, and then things sort of go pear-shaped. I mean, you often see that with Palestinian families in general. There's, they're, they're very family-based society, but the families really suffer, you know, and struggle, and the kind of ramifications are very domestic. I mean, how old were you when you first went to Palestine? I went, um, I went late. So my, my father didn't take us when we were little. I went when I was 21, 22. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I, I try and go every year. but Because um, yeah. it's not easy to get in and out, is mm. it? No, no, it's not. It's not easy. No, <laughs> to say the least, and that is the understatement of the year, yeah. obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I've got a British passport, but yeah, they don't necessarily like Palestinians with foreign passports. But, mm. yeah. No, it's, um, how important was it to you to tell the story of the country as well? It was important. Well, you know, it's interesting because w- when I began writing it, I really wanted to... Um, for me, not that I wanted to write something unpolitical, but I wanted to write the political act was to write about Palestinians in a different context, the way they're usually mm-hmm. portrayed. Uh, but obviously, as I began to learn and began to understand the milieu in which this man actually lived, that their lives were very political, and that the Palestinian national movement began much earlier, and the Zionist movement began much earlier. Um, so this period that I had a f- sort of idea about as being sort of an unpolitical period was very, very political. Um, and it became very natural to write about that history as I was learning about it. Um, and kind of fundamental to understanding uh, what it what it means to be this kind of character, kind of a lover, and un, sort of not necessarily that engaged um, in a time of war. That was the yeah, dynamic. Yeah, a lover, not a fighter, me. to use a horrible cliche. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he kind of is, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. And that seems like another way that he doesn't belong. So he kind yeah. of doesn't belong in. It's no spoilers to say he doesn't really belong in France. He doesn't really belong when he goes back to Palestine. Yeah. He doesn't. Yeah. None of him fits mm. really. Yeah. Um, do you feel, I mean, you've both actually spoken um, about, the res- particularly you, Isabella, about the responsibility the responsibility that's put on you to speak for a nation, right, and a right. generation. <laughs> Can you talk about that a bit? Because that must be infuriating. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's kind of, I think it's sort of, in a way, kind of interesting. Like, I have um, at least twice someone has asked me what the book's about, and then I tell them the title, and they say... Don't you mean the Palestinian? As if, like, <laughs> no. I the title. But the, but I think it's very indicative that people They're expect. Telling you what you yeah. mean? And I'm sure you yeah. have this as well. They yeah. expect it to be representative if it's from a if it's from a faraway place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but, but in a way, you know, that is on maybe infuriating on some level. Uh, also, I think it's interesting, and I feel like I was very conscious of that while writing it. So it's sort of embedded in the novel this idea of what it means to be representative. Mm. Mithat is, is not representative of Palestinians, um, but he is Palestinian, and, and and that dynamic also interests me as well as being maybe something that I feel like I want to kind of verbally confront in discussion around the novel. It's definitely in the novel as well. Is that something you've? Yeah, I think, uh, I think to be Zambian, to be of any country, is to be ambivalent. And I'm American now as well, and I'm ambivalent about that. And I think in some ways that's the most American thing about me, is that deep ambivalence. I you grew up in both countries, didn't you? Yeah, I grew up in Zambia until I was eight and a half or nine, um, and then moved to the States and um, went... My parents moved back in 2002, and so like Isabella, I've gone back as much as possible since I was about 21, 22, every year, every other year. Um, And I was also back for a year when I was 15, which was really formative. I don't think I would have the same relationship with my country if I hadn't gone back. But I think, you know, I don't really believe in the nation state. And the novel is very uh, insistent that Zambia is in many ways an accidental nation. Um, The 
borders were drawn pretty arbitrarily. My mum had this story that the line uh, went right through her village and the chief stayed on one side and sent the chieftainess to the other side, and that's why we're feminist, <laughs> you know, that, that, <laughs> uh, the Namwangas. So, you know, the, but the, in, the, in the upper left corner of the map of Zambia is this orthogonal right angle, which is the king of Italy was asked to arbitrate and really? he just took a pen and drew a, a straight line, two straight lines. It's the most unusual thing. The rest of, of the wow. borders are riverine and, you know, wow. sometimes oh actual God. rivers. So, it, you know, to me, the idea of lassoing, you know, seven major tribes, 72 different dialects of uh, speaking people into one nation was a real act of hubris, um, but it's also quite ridden with this sense of arbitrariness or contingency. At the same time, there's this pride, you know, one Zambia, one nation is what our, our first president, Kenneth Gaunda, said. And it was an attempt to unify uh, a nation based on the fact of this, what I would think is a generative era, right? Mm. Um, and the, the novel very much is about generative era. But it means that, you know, when I think about what it is to represent my country, I'm representing a kind of accident of history but at the same time, I also feel very Zambian. I feel like there is something very specific. There's a, a, a quiddity to, to, to Zambian culture that a lot of people don't know. So the way that I play with that ambivalence is by calling it the great Zambian novel you didn't know you were waiting for yeah. with a pinch of irony. I mean, you've both been, I've noticed you've both been described as part of uh, waves coming out of your countries when neither of you are from those I mean you're Zambian but you're not from the West Bank I mean I've seen in fact it was both the New York Times actually described mm. you as a wave of Palestinian women writers and you're a mm. wave of African women, women writers. writers I mean yeah. how do you feel about that well I think that you know um specifically to the Palestinian situation it's very this is a massive diaspora so um, for a number of reasons, refugees and emigration, all sorts of things. So I feel like it, um, there's a very particular way that w people talk about Pal the Palestinian diaspora and what it means to say you're Palestinian is a sort of important um, thing, you know, whether or not you grew up there. And that is a, itself a political act um, mm -hmm. and a kind of an act of commitment, sort of. So it's sort of ethical in a way. Um, so so it's sort of it almost doesn't necessarily have much to do with your your papers or your nationality because obviously there's only Palestinians who didn't have my dad grew up in Lebanon for example you know mm -hmm. um, so it's sort of technically yeah. Lebanese but it's and um, and there are lots of people in that generation who took a long time to say they were Palestinian so it's, a, it's sort of complex it's a very specific situation so I guess that that wave thing you're talking about they're mostly they are Palestinians in diaspora of different mm. ethnic makeups but they have in some way asserted their Palestinianness. Um, mm. as, a, as a specific overt public act. It's very similar to the kind of idea of the African women writers as a wave because a lot of us live in the diaspora and also we're coming from Africa, which is like 54 countries. Right? Yes. So, yeah. so, so it's yeah. like a diasporic by nature. And I, again, I think there's a sense in which there's a specificity to diaspora. If you think of the kind of etymology of scattering, the specificity of the granular quality of each culture, but there's also the sense of a, a mass, a, you know, yeah. a swarm, a, you know, a group of, of, of people, um, no matter where we are. And we're all connected virtually by the internet now anyway. Mm. So I think my, I, I, don't re I don't reject the labels, you know, that people, tried to apply to my work because I think there's only richness 
if we add more and more labels, if that makes sense. Mm, yes, yeah. um, so I'm Zambian, I'm American, I'm African, I'm a woman, I'm a writer, I'm, I'm all of these things. I'm British, my father's British, you know, so. Yeah. Um, I, and your mother is British mm. as well. Yeah, so we I think we have some you know mm. tie to the to the <laughs> to the imperial center in that right. way as well. So I think you know I also think all boats rise together. So if there's a flood, I'm happy to be part of yeah. it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's a really brilliant way of looking at it. Um, I wanted to talk about, as I said, the, both of these books are absolutely huge, yeah. um, and I want to talk a little bit about structure, just mm. just a, a tiny bit, because um, your work, Isabella, has been compared um, in no small way to Flaubert and Stendhal and amazing 19th century novelists, and the Parisian is, it's quite old-fashioned in its structure, in a good way, I mean that as a compliment, um, it, it is quite a a, a classic 19th century novel. Did you set out to write it in that way? I didn't set out with, with the particular models in mind necessarily, but I, I had in mind the story and I, and I had a kind of like inchoate, non-verbal sense of how I wanted it to feel um, as a large book and the kind of trajectory of it. And I thought of the design. A design is very important to me and I think plotting can be a very, very beautiful part of writing. Mm -hmm. and I don't think you should disdain plot. Um, yeah. And I thought Absolutely of it in these, it's this three-act structure, um, and with the with the playing with time as a kind of factor of of narrative prose. You know how, how to use that in the novel form. Um, it's resemblance to nineteenth-century novels. Uh, I guess that's in the largely in realism in the mass of characters mm. and in the way the narrative voice sometimes pulls away. You know those things that kind of echo the nineteenth-century. Also, I think it's because I grew up reading a lot of those a lot of those novels. Um, and I think those, I suspect that one's first novel is in some way, there's some large part of it that's quite unconscious. You don't necessarily consciously choose elements of it. And I think it would have come out of me because some, certain of those books were in me in a certain yeah. way. Yeah, I see what you um, mean. Did you know it would be long? I did know it would be long, yeah. yeah. Did you know it would be long? I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yours, you started writing this in 2000, is yeah. that right, Namali? Yeah. I was writing it off and on, uh, so I wrote the first third off and on for like 15 years, and then <laughs> I wrote the last two thirds of it in about a year and a half, which is so, it's, it, oh, so yeah. the two very different origin stories for the book in that sense, right, in terms of process. Um, and so I have a hard time when people ask me, well, how, why did you take so long? I'm also like, well, why did I do the, the end so fast? So, fast. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't really know what, what the next book will take. You also have a quite classic, really, three-act structure. Yeah, yeah, three parts. The book in three volumes, like Jane Eyre, I guess, or something. Um, I always knew that would be the case because it was either going to be um, divided by the three families or by the three generations, and I ended up going by the three oh, generations. Oh, I'm glad you went by the generations. Yeah, yeah. I think it gives, um, a, you know, the one the one thing I'm not playing with <laughs> in the novel is time. It's It moves relatively chronologically from the, the earliest beginnings in uh, David Livingston supposedly discovering Victoria Falls um, all the way to, you know, the, the far future. I think if you played with time, that might have just been... Too it much. might have been too much. Yes, because yeah. I play with genre a lot. Yeah, one of the things I absolutely love about it, I mean, you mentioned how, Isabella, how realist the Parisian is, and, and I love the magic realism in, mm. in The Old Drift. And, um, Thank you. So, this, so I'm, gonna, I'm going for the hair now. Yes. There's no way I can make hair a theme in both books, so we're just going to talk fine. about hair <laughs> in The Old Drift. Um, talk to me about Sibylla and, um, and kind of the role that hair plays 
throughout the old drift? Yeah, so uh, Sibylla came to me as a character early on, and I think... Sorry, I should just add that Sibylla is one of the grandmothers. Yes. She's an amazing character. <laughs> so she's, um, in a, she's Italian, and um, she eventually comes to, to what is northern Rhodesia right um, in the 50s, right before it becomes Zambia in the, in the early 60s. And there was an Italian presence in uh, Zambia uh, building the Kariba Dam and that learning about that and also learning about Pietro Gavuzzi, um, who is her grandfather, um, uh, being the first hotelier of the Victoria Falls Hotel was part of why I wanted to bring Italy into the novel because they have this there's this strand of Italian um, history. But she came to me first as um, this girl who's born covered in hair which many babies are but her hair doesn't go away it continues to grow and grow and no matter how much her mother and her grandmother trim it it grows to kind of full body length every day and um, she just sort of appeared to me as as in that form it's hard for me to explain where the magical realist ideas come from but I do think I'm interested in the interface of the body with the environment. So the parts of the body, like the eyes or tears um, with one character, um, and hair that are both internal and external, that are both actually, this is a bit creepy, alive and dead. Um, it is creepy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> so I think this idea of, um, there's a gothic aspect to these characters mm. as well. So you could think of them as fantastic or as gothic or as magical realist, depending on what mood you're in. And I've decided to draw her hair into connection with another um, cultural historical uh, anecdote that I read about um, in, I think, the early 2000s, which is a temple in India called Tirupati, where they practice tonsia, where people shave their head and give the hair to the god. But what that means in real life is that wig factories get all this free hair um, mm. around the temple and they sell that hair to uh, wig makers and also to you know places on the continent like Zambia where women weave that or braid that mm. hair into their own scalps. And so I was really interested in this literal figure for the interweaving of cultures um, in my country. So a lot of the um, dynamic action that happens between the three families uh, culminates in a scene at a hair salon. So you, um, and we could talk about hair all day. As um, you can't see me, I have a lot of it. I'm quite <laughs> obsessed. Um, hair is very important to me. Mm. Um, let's talk also a little bit about, you, you talked about playing with genres. There's quite a lot of SF, um, science fiction, mm, yes. in, in The Old Drift. You're quite into science fiction, aren't you? I am, yeah. And I, I have been for a very long time since I was a kid. Um, and I sort of returned to it after my canonical training in undergraduate and graduate study. As a professor at UC Berkeley, I was given complete freedom to teach whatever I wanted. And I chose to teach a course on black science fiction and kind of rediscovered my love of sci-fi and um which I apparently I'm not supposed to say sci-fi it's not no, a it has to be SF no or really. science fiction or just SF yeah I think so it's not <laughs> no sci-fi if anybody says sci-fi that in fact I was going to say the the geeks I won't say that because they'll you have to cut that out or they'll kill me um you have to say SF or you're not a true yeah true stan probably more than time yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <laughs> Call it whatever you want. Well, it's your obsession. I have, I have, a, I have a, a great love of all kinds of literature, and I think there's something about the clubbishness about, uh, you know, around certain genres that I think prompted me to actually try to include multiple genres in the book. Yeah. And as I was writing more and more, writers started to write books that were hybrid or juxtapose multiple genres like David Mitchell or Jennifer Egan or um, even uh, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Mm. So there's lots of different models that kind of came into being as I was writing the book and it felt really nice to have this kind of companion texts that I could point to and say, look, I'm not the only one who's interested in putting magical realism, social realism, historical fiction, spy fiction and you know science fiction all in one book. Did, were you inspired by any other writers in particular when you were working? Um, there weren't that many writers that I looked at specifically uh, to learn things, though I were reading all the time and obviously reading is close to dreaming and, and often leads to writing. But there were, I did look at Marquez. I was interested in people who, how mm. different writers manage time. Um, Marquez in um, Love in the Time of Cholera, mm. how he manages time there. I thought that was very interesting. Um, You've both been compared to Marquez, haven't mm. you? I mean, I'm in the presence of greats here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also Marquez's submerged we. I always think, well, it's not that submerged. It crops up. He talks about our social chroniclers. Mm. I, that, I found that very helpful thinking about uh, perspective and also how to delimit a narrative that threatens to be sprawling and to kind of uh, overflow the bounds that you set it. So... My submerged we was Nablus, so I only allowed things that could somehow orally be transmitted back to Nablus. Mm. Otherwise, things in France mm. could have got, you know, multiplied and metastasized and got bigger and bigger. Um, so I found that very helpful, yeah. And on the subject of we, I mean, it's like, uh, very quickly, let's talk about the Mosquito Chorus. Yes. So I love the chorus. Oh, thank you. Um, so from the beginning of the novel and every 60 pages or so, um, a chorus of... A swarm of mosquitoes emerges to comment on the action, to describe the kind of larger philosophical principles that are being enacted by these um, mere mortals, and to tease the humans and to also kind of give me a chance to play with language and etymology and entomology and kind of nerd out in that way. But I was thinking when I was putting that uh, voice together, I was actually thinking about a different we, which is Saramago's we, mm. um, which I think of as kind of avuncular, like a sort of, it's not a father figure, it's not, you know, a, a caring mother, but it's like a, a kind of kindly uncle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, you know, commenting on, on what's going on. It's brilliant. We're about to run out of time, but I want to ask you both um, two questions about books. Um, firstly, what are you reading now? And secondly, what your Desert Island book would be? Yeah. Who would like to well, know? I'm reading your book right now. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> right, so now Marley's <laughs> reading the Parisian. Yeah. Yeah. What's your Desert Island? Yeah. Um, my Desert Island book that I would bring. No yeah. matter, mm. If you would only have one. That's a really hard question. Yeah, I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe Don Quixote because it's because oh, oh, wow. it's like eighteen novels in one, and mm. and it's also quite infinitely rich and 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 funny, and you you don't want to be bored on the island. No, that's true. That's true. It could be a boring island. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I'm currently re I'm nearly finished reading Elias Khoury's new book, Children of the Ghetto, um, which is very good, um, and I. My desert island book would have to be a long one, wouldn't it? 
Yes, I get. Yeah. I would probably take the Recognitions by William Galdis. Oh, I haven't read that. It's long. So it going for a while. <laughs> it's very good. You should read it. <laughs> I'm reading a really two really long ones at the moment. Right. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read a short one next. <laughs> uh, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much, Ismail Hamad and Namali Sopal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. If you pick up the old drift or the Parisian, um, do tweet us at Vintage Books or you can message us on Instagram at Vintage Books and tell us what you thought about them. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much to Isabella, Namwali and Sam for such a great discussion. Uh, We do hope that you subscribe so you can hear some more of our vintage episodes. We've got lots more exciting interviews coming up. And if you're looking for something to listen to next, we've got a huge backlist of incredible episodes. Um, Only recently on the podcast, we've had Rosie Price, Ian McEwan, and we even went to London Book Fair. So do take a look through our backlist. It is a wealthy uh, lot. We've actually been going for seven years now, uh, vintage books. So there's lots and lots of material to get your teeth into. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time.